Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the fourth episode in New Books in Interpretive Political and Social Science, a special series hosted by the New Books in Political Science channel. I'm Nick Cheesman, a fellow at the Australian National University. My guest today is James C. Scott, the Sterling Professor of Political Science and co-director of the Agrarian Studies Program at Yale University. Jim has authored many books that will be well known to listeners, among them classics like Weapons of the Week, and The Moral Economy of the Peasant. But the one we're here to discuss today is his latest, Against the Grain, A Deep History of the Earliest States, published by Yale University Press in 2017. Jim, welcome to the show, and thank you very much for taking the time to join us. Happy to be here. Jim, you've been quoted as saying that a book's thesis ought to be expressible in a couple of paragraphs. What are those paragraphs for this book? The paragraphs for this book would be to alert the reader that most of the things that we have been taught or absorbed in our school days about the rise of civilizations in the earliest states around 6000 BC are mistaken in rather fundamental ways. And the general story is that we were somehow able to domesticate plants. And by domesticating plants, we could stay in the same place with fixed fields. And therefore, we could support larger populations and towns grew up in cities and civilizations that we now know from our museum visits and from our standard stories. One of the things that's wrong with that, perhaps the most important thing that got me started, was the fact that there is firm evidence of domesticated plants at least 4,000 years before anything like agrarian villages growing fixed field crops appears in the Middle East. And so it seems to me the standard accounts will have to explain why this domestication of plants did not immediately lead to the establishment of agrarian societies and civilizations. The assumption also was that these early states, nutrition was better, their lives were longer, they were less plagued by disease, and that in a sense, it was a vast leap in human welfare, and that happens to be wrong as well. Why is that wrong? There are several reasons. One of them that people will immediately understand is that Homo sapiens has been around for 200,000 years, and it's only the last 15,000 years maximum that we've lived in congregations of any appreciable size. So most of our species history 
is a history of uh, hunting and gathering, and that means movement through the landscape. Hunters and gatherers leave their trash behind, and their feces as well, I might add. In that respect, they are less likely to have what we call the community infections. I mention this in particular because coronavirus is one of those community infections that require a certain number of people to be collected and to be interacting with one another in a relatively small space. The other thing is that we actually have very firm evidence as well that the nutritional status of the people in the early grain states was inferior to the nutritional status of hunters and gatherers. That is to say, if we find um, skeletal remains, especially of women, by the way, and we want to know whether they were in a grain civilization or whether they are hunters and gatherers, the skeletons from the grain civilization are, are smaller, they, their, their height is less, and their teeth and bones and something called harris lines show evidence of nutritional deficiencies. And the bones of the hunters and gatherers do not show or very rarely show any interruptions in growth that have to do with nutritional deficiencies. It's not to say that hunters and gatherers were completely healthy. Of course, they had parasites and so on of their own, but the hunting and gathering diet was superior to the grain diet, which consisted mostly of carbohydrates. And so the question is, Given the fact that there were lots of disadvantages to the congregation of large numbers of people in towns in terms of disease and life expectancy, why did people actually congregate? And there are a whole series of hypotheses about why this took place, and none of them, it seems to me, has completely prevailed. One of them is that most of the large game in the world actually had been killed by that time. And there is something called a broad spectrum revolution, which is to say that people are eating lower on the food chain. And that meant small animals, shellfish, and of course, grains, which were naturally occurring as uh, wild plants as well. Another reason is a cold and dry period in the Middle East in which a lot of lands that could be farmed earlier were suddenly unable to be farmed successfully and crops would not grow. And people congregated more and more in wet places where there was a reliable supply of water and agriculture or gathering was more successful. And in that case, what you had was, if you like, a demographic change or climatic change that forced people to congregate. There are other hypotheses as well, but the point is that we're not sure about why people congregated in this way. And given the fact that it involved more labor and actually some deficits in terms of health and nutrition and mortality, it's something that needs to be explained because it seems to me that people did not do this for the most part voluntarily. In that response, you had a couple of temporal references. By that time, a cold period, you made a reference to the Middle East. Perhaps before proceeding, it would be useful for us to just be a little bit more specific about when and where are we talking? The earliest states, agrarian states, were in the Tigris-Euphrates Valley and the alluvium of the Tigris and Euphrates River. And those first states arose something like 3000 BC, that is to say 5,000 years ago. And to put things in perspective, the first evidence of domesticated plants, and domestication means taking control over the reproduction of something, and we can tell that there are domesticated plants 
10,000 BC. And the first agrarian villages that one finds are around 4,000 BC, and the first agrarian states around 3,000 BC. I'm being very rough about this. And this is Mesopotamia. This is Babylon, Uruk, and a whole series of tiny little city-states. These were very small states. We're talking about 15, 20, 25,000 people in many cases, and you could walk across these states in the course of a day. You write in the book of these states that one of the things that's remarkable about them, thinking about them in terms of their size, that the more one reads about them, the greater one's astonishment at the feats of statecraft and the improvisation that brought them into being in the first place. Why that astonishment? And if it was such a feat for them to come into existence, then how were they able to prevail? Even before there were states, there were trading settlements. Uh, That is to say, one of the important things is that trade in certain commodities is older than civilization, you could say. So you did have concentrations of people usually congregated for the purposes of trade and exchange, and they ended up being the nucleuses of states later on. It raises the question, which you didn't ask directly, but what this implied is, What is a state? My position is that it's a continuum variable rather than a binary variable. That is to say, not either a state or not a state, but there are different degrees of stateness. And so if it has a wall, if it has a king, if it has tax collectors, if it has artisans and so on, then it is more like what we understand to be a state. And the fewer of these things it has, the less it's likely to be like a state. So the question is, how did the states hang on to a population that must have recognized, at least most of them, not all of them, that their life conditions were more tenuous than their life as hunters and gatherers? And as I said, one reason is that there were climatic conditions that forced them to congregate and to be in what I would call a state space. The other thing, which is, I think, something I wasn't quite prepared for, is that the problem of these early states is that people were running away from them all the time. And also the mortality rates were high and they would empty out often with diseases. So that most of the wars in these very early civilizations are what I call wars of capture, in which it was not about territory, but wars were meant to grab people, particularly women, and bring them back to these early states. So one of the things that I found kind of surprising and important is that these early states had a population problem and they had to supplement their population, which was declining by either flight or by disease. And they did that by wars of capture that added to the population. Now, These early agrarian settlements were a novel ecological setting that had never existed before. That is to say, they were collections of more people than had ever been aggregated in a single place. There were domesticated animals, right? There were uh, crop fields, orchards, and so on. It was, if you like, an artificial landscape that had to be defended pretty much constantly. And so it was a new ecological setting in which all kinds of other things arrived, like mice and rats and pigeons and all the pests that we associate with domesticated animals and grain. And that's why in the epoch of coronavirus, I suppose, 
it's important to emphasize the fact that virtually all of the infectious community diseases, mumps, measles, chickens, pox, diphtheria, and many others, it's not that they were rare historically and became more common in these early urban gatherings, but they did not exist. Most of the zoonotic diseases that we get come from proximity with domesticated animals and today from bush meat and from from wild animals. But most of our infectious diseases are things that jump from species because of their close proximity in these early civilizations. In one of the uh, symposia on the book in the Cambridge Archaeological Journal, you received a good amount of both praise and criticism from the book's discussants. And you say that despite all of that at the end, you would have welcomed more commentary on precisely this point, the case that you make in the book for, quote, the possibly pivotal role of the epidemiological consequences of crowding of domesticated livestock and humans. So why was this element of the conditions that you're interested in so pivotal? And in as much as you talk about infectious diseases as having a civilizational effect, what do you mean by that? Infectious diseases, the, the kinds of diseases that are we call zoonotic diseases, like chickenpox, monks, measles, diphtheria, etc., jump from domesticated animals because of the proximity over time and human beings. And incidentally, we probably gave diseases to these animals. And so it just happens that I'm a homo sapiens talking about the diseases that animals gave us. If I were an intelligent goat, I would probably be complaining about the diseases that humans gave us. What's interesting to me is that all of these diseases require a certain quantity of people, depending on the virulence, its duration, how easily it's transmitted, and so on. The point is that you need a certain critical mass of people in order to carry an infection in that population. The example that I use in the book that is a favorite for infectious disease specialists is the example of the Faroe Islands. The Faroe Islands had a very small population, perhaps 10,000, I'm not sure exactly. But a Danish sailor came in the early 18th century with measles. Measles is extremely infectious, by the way. And he gave the measles, if you like, to everybody in the Faroe Islands. Many people died. And then the people who had it and survived had lifetime immunity. So there was no more measles in the Faroe Islands after this epidemic was finished in a few months. About, I think, 40 years later, another Danish sailor arrives with measles. And everybody who is over 40 is unaffected because they have lifetime immunity. Everybody under 40 is exposed to the measles. Some of them die, some of them don't, and so on. And so there are like three episodes with the point being that the Faroe Islands population was not large enough to make measles endemic so that it was carried in the population. Jim, this is a series in interpretive political and social science, and I'm trying to think through and discuss the book in the spirit of that series in a way to dwell with you in its historical sensibility rather than go into the historical particulars too much. And to that end, I'd like to try to work through some of the provocations of the book that you've alluded to a little bit more and some of the conceptualizations or rather reconceptualizations. Among those, much of the contents of the book do turn on this concept of domestication. Could you develop it a little bit more? What's, in a sense, the etymology of domestication and who or what is being domesticated 
the central meaning of domestication is, I think, insofar as it's used by Homo sapiens. There are other animals who are also domesticating other things. But for Homo sapiens, domestication means the selection of a wild plant or animal, generally, that is selected for certain characteristics, like the size of its seed, the fact that it will all germinate at the same time, and so on. So when we speak of, let's say, the domestication of wheat, we mean taking control over the reproduction of wheat, selecting certain varieties that then depend on our cultivation, the cultivated field, hoeing, weeding, and so on. And the striking thing about a domesticated animal generally, it's not 100% true, but it's generally true, is that they cannot survive on their own without the attention and care of the domesticator, in this case is Homo sapiens. So a wheat field of domesticated wheat that has been selected from stands of wild wheat over long periods of time has characteristics that do not fit it for survival in the wild. So domestication means control over reproduction. And the reason why that is probably not a completely satisfactory understanding of domestication is I believe that there are some animal-human relationships that ought to be seen as co-domestication, for example, dogs from wolves. It seems to me that dogs domesticated us quite as much as we domesticated dogs. My understanding actually is that, I'm not sure about this, that pigs also may have found the domus with all of its plant wastes and so on to be a very attractive place so that wild pigs may have in part domesticated themselves by eating in these early agrarian settlements. But the point about domestication is that the thing that is domesticated depends on our tending it and protecting it because otherwise it will not survive. So we're accustomed to that idea applying to plants and animals, as you just said, and you also have the category of fire as the, in a sense, the original domestication you discuss in the book, but you also extend the category to us. Why? Well, this is, as you say, a provocation because it dawned on me that, well, two things. The first thing is that we know that the physiology and brain of domesticated animals is different in very important ways from their wild cousins, the difference between a wolf and a dog, the difference between a wild Himalayan sheep and a domesticated sheep. And so the assumption is that by protecting these animals, protecting them from their predators in the natural world, they lose the flight and fright responses. They are less shy. They are physiologically different from their wild cousins. Question is, after being civilized, if you I may use that word, for the last 8,000 years, has the physiology of Homo sapiens changed? There's a, an interesting New Zealand geneticist who speculates a good deal about the way in which domesticated Homo sapiens may have different brain wiring and so on than the undomesticated hunters and gatherers historically. So I speculate on the fact that, for example, one of the things that we have wrong, of course, about the life of hunters and gatherers is that we tend to uh, assume that they're 
a day away from starvation and that every day they go out and uh, find or do not find uh, food and that their life is particularly precarious. Everything we know about historically about hunters and gatherers, and even hunters and gatherers today for that matter, is that it's not as if they wake up in the morning and go out and hope that they encounter some animal that they can kill or some plant that they can collect. They are, if you like, the curators and the cognoscenti of all of the migrations and ripening cycles of a million nuts and fruits of fish migrations, of animal migrations. In the Mesopotamian alluvium, for example, much of the protein uh, that historically came to people who lived there was from the gazelle migration, which was an annual migration. And by creating sort of funnels of brush and so on, they could direct these migrations into killing fields where they got almost all of their protein for the entire year. The analogy that people are more familiar with is, let's say, the Pacific Northwest in the U.S., in the New World, in which the salmon runs provided almost all of the protein. Before agriculture, I think the Pacific Northwest was probably the richest place in the world, and it shows in their material culture. So in that sense, hunters and gatherers are exploiting the rhythms of the natural world as migrations and ripening things. And I speculated that once Homo sapiens became largely growers of grain, and all civilizations are based on grains by and large, whether it's maize or millet or rice or wheat or barley, that their, if you like, their attention is devoted not entirely, but very largely to a single clockwork of the grain that they grow that is their major staple. And I speculate that this was vastly narrowing in terms of their understanding of the natural world. And you call these cereal crops the premier political crops, if I recall correctly, precisely because they connect to a political economy of the state that enables, uh, well, a different kind of political order from anything that existed previously. So what was it about those crops that made that possible? And to ask your own questions back to you, why no lentil states, chickpea states, taro states, sago states, breadfruit states, yam states, etc.? You will recognize that this is an argument that carries over from my art of not being governed to some extent. And so certain forms of subsistence crops lend themselves to a greater or lesser degree to taxation, to put it simply. The great thing for a state about, let's say, wheat or barley or maize or rice is that it grows above the ground. That sounds stupid, but it's not, it's not, it's not trivial. That it ripens at the same time, that its relative abundance can be just judged visually, if you like, that it can be harvested and threshed into small grains that can be dried and which are preserved for quite a long time, and that can be moved actually fairly substantial uh, distances and are useful as rations to make porridge or bread or what have you. If you compare that to things that grow below ground, tubers, roots and tubers would be the striking example to the contrary. If the state wants your potatoes, it has to dig them up one by one, just the way you do. And then it has a tuber 
that's not going to last very, very long compared to dried wheat in a uh, silo. And so the advantages of grain crops that can be stored, used as rations and taxed especially, is perfectly obvious to states. And I think that's the reason why both people who are fleeing the states will often resort to forms of subsistence that cannot subject them to taxation and state control, and that states encourage or mandate uh, that their populations grow a taxable crop. So then in saying that these are premier or preeminent political crops, again, to go to an argument you made in a previous book, um, seeing like a state, there's a legibility aspect to these crops, which is absent from others. Right. The question is, how is a state able to accumulate the resources efficiently that are required for, let's say, that 20% of the population that are specialists, artisans, priests, accountants, aristocrats, and so on? They require a store of value that can be preserved for an appreciable amount of time. That is to say, these early states are the first states that have a substantial portion of their population that does not grow their own food. And because of that specialization, they need to be fed from some common store. And it's, of course, the state, right, that organizes this, the consumption of elites by appropriating grain from the population of agriculturalists that are the basis of all of these early states. This sounds to me rather similar to Marx's primitive accumulation argument. Would you agree or am I misunderstanding it? You're quite right. To the degree that you can prevent access to the commons, that is to say, open land, a frontier, and so on, you force people then to provide their calories to maximize the amount of nutrition that they can extract from a given amount of land. For hunters and gatherers in open territory where there's lots of land, you're not interested in how much you can get out of an acre. You're only interested in how much work it takes you to get the calories that you need because the acres are, if you like, free. And, and, th and that's why, incidentally, that all of these states are also on alluvial floodplains because those are the kinds of landscapes that make possible grain growing on a fairly substantial scale. I mean, the Nile River, of course, is the great example of a flood that gets rid of all the competing vegetation in its, at flood stage every year that deposits nutritious silt and then, on a good year anyway, um, goes back into its main channel and leaves you a perfectly harrowed and nutritious field on which to plant crops. And so this is the if you like, the easiest form of agriculture, and it's why it's the very first form of agriculture. Jim, let's take a moment to pause here, and then when we come back, I'd like to make our way towards okay. the golden age of the barbarians and <laughs> some of the book's critics as well. If you're interested in interpretive political and social science, then why not take a look at the website of the Interpretive Methodologies and Methods Group, the site has a ton of resources, including articles, essays, and syllabi, as well as details about courses, conferences, and awards. There's also a mailing list, so you can stay up to date with the latest news on events, jobs, and more. You can reach the IMM site via the link on the New Books in Interpretive Political and Social Science webpage, 
or by DuckDuckGoing, Interpretive Methodologies and Methods, and clicking on the very first result. Welcome back to New Books in Interpretive Political and Social Science with James Scott talking about Against the Grain. Jim, the impression the reader gets towards the end of the book is that overall one would be better off outside of any kind of state over this period. And if that's the case, then you end up in what is your residual category, the barbarian. Your conclusion is that it was relatively good to be a barbarian. Could you develop this residual category for listeners a bit more and explain why was it that this was a golden age, if you can use that term, for barbarians? You understand, of course, that my use of the term barbarian is done with my tongue-in-cheek. What barbarian means is someone who is not yet a subject of a state, and that was true for a huge part of the population. Uh, I ask myself without having a kind of scientific answer to it, but I ask myself speculatively, at what point in world history would most people have had the experience of an annual systematic tax collection. And even in China and Western Europe, my guess is it's not until 1600 that you get the systematic tax collection. You get sort of states that exist for a generation or so that collect taxes. But for any long durée collection of taxes, that's comparatively rare. But the argument about people outside the state, aka barbarians, is that they were advantaged by the existence of small states. And there, as you know, as a Southeast Asianist, there are hundreds and hundreds of of examples of the tradition of raiding in which a mobile pastoralist or slash and burn or hunting and gathering people occasionally raid settlements for their grain, for their pots and pans, for their metal, for their jewelry, for their blankets, and so on. The Berbers are famous for a saying in which they assert that raiding is our agriculture. The point being that why would you go to the trouble of tending crops for two years when you can raid a fixed settlement and take away the grain in their granary and save you the trouble of cultivating for a couple of years. Obviously, to the degree that raiding is predatory and destroys the settlements, then people simply move away. And so it's likely to settle down to a relationship between raiders and sedentary settlements in which they pay a small tax. The other thing that's going on, which is actually the most important and a kind of surprise to me, although in retrospect, I don't know why I hadn't figured it out for myself, is that these civilizations, whether they're the Nile Valley, the Mesopotamian Valley, the Yellow River Valley, they are a very narrow ecology in many ways, and they rely on wood and stone and minerals and so on from the hills and the watersheds around them, upstream. The point is that these are very different ecological zones. They produce very radically different products, and they are dependent on one another. They are naturally trading partners. The valley states are, if you like, competitors with one another. But each of them is linked to a hinterland in which they get products that are absolutely necessary. And, of course, the hinterland takes products from the valley as well. In Mesopotamia, 
this would be wool garments and uh, and actually some grain. What's interesting here is that a lot of the things that people are gathering that were subsistence goods become in a world of trading states things that can be sold on the market to these valley trading kingdoms that are suddenly uh, valuables. For example, this will be familiar for people who work on Southeast Asia. A tremendous number of the things in Borneo, you know, rhinoceros horn, the gallstones of monkeys, certain rare plants, edible birds' nests, etc., etc., things that could not be found in the urban lowlands, these were goods that were very important in international commerce. And if you could collect these things and get them to a trading port of a lowland valley kingdom, you could get a lot of grain or metal or whatever it was you wanted to trade them for. So the point is that many of the things that could be gathered, collected in the highlands, in the, if you like, barbarian zone, became valuable items for international commerce historically. If the barbarians are not so barbaric after all, and if they have certain characteristics of their social and political organization in common with those with people in the States, yet they don't have the disadvantage of being subject to raids and losing crops which they've been growing or other material items, then I suppose we come back to this question of even with that four millennia gap, how is it that states ultimately succeed in becoming viable if they are so fragile and for the most part disadvantageous for the people who populate them? How do they eventually come out on top, as it were, and your barbarians become subjects of our history or your history, rather? That's the big question. It's not something that I have a firm answer to, but it's clear, as you say, that it's the crucial thing to explain. Why is it that this fragile ecology, that this fragile state system with high rates of mortality and disease ends up prevailing? What I can do is to tell you some of the reasons that have given in the literature. Perhaps the most important reason is that the rate of fertility in these early grain civilizations are much higher than they are among hunters and gatherers. We kind of know that hunters and gatherers are likely to have between two and four children, uh, partly because that has to do with movement over time. And that although mortality rates are high and people die relatively younger in these agrarian civilizations, They do not die before they have exhausted their reproductive age, by and large. In these grain societies, first of all, people are not moving around. The distance between one pregnancy and another is smaller. Weaning is much earlier. And the rates of surviving children are much higher, despite mortality rates and epidemics that are sometimes devastating. So, In the long run, and we really are talking about the long run, uh, the argument is that these agrarian civilizations out-reproduced hunters and gatherers. I think it's also important that for fixed-point settlements, they were militarily superior. Although they could often not conquer the hinterlands, they could defend themselves fairly successfully over time. And so you got 
it's the argument made by several people that the expansionist imperialist kingdoms were the agrarian kingdoms because of their population explosion and that they gradually hopped from alluvial plain to alluvial plain throughout the world where these grains could be grown and created these fixed states. And so those are, again, I, I try to be as careful as I can when there are issues that I have not resolved. And I think this is one of those. And so what I'm passing on, if you like, are the the debate that is going on about why states ended up prevailing. And in the concluding page of the book also, as you say, that one would be hard put to find an early state that did not enlist non-state peoples in their armies to catch runaway slaves and repress revolts. Barbarian levies had as much to do with building states as with plundering them by systematically replenishing the state's manpower base by slaving and by protecting and expanding the state with its military service, the barbarians willingly dug their own grave, which is in a way a suggestion that they became victims of their own success, in a sense, the superior social organization through its co-optation into the inferior one, that's my term, resulted in its own demise. That last assertion is something that deserves a book that should be written by somebody else. But what's interesting, of course, is that, and I don't elaborate that as much as I might have, that there are barbarians and there are barbarians. There are different kinds of forms of social formations outside the state that are not states, but are not uh, necessarily similar to one another. So, for example, in European history, the example of this is the Celtic Opida, which were often fairly substantial settlements with walls that tended to be at the periphery of the Roman Empire, controlling trade routes and often a river, and controlling the trade back and forth. And these got to be, if you like, secondary or what someone calls shadow empires that were dependent on the trade. And they tended to be both the guardians of the frontier, that was a lucrative position to be in that a lot of wealth could follow. And these people, it seems to me, had many of the advantages of civilization in terms of the things they could buy and the luxuries of their lives without the inconvenience of taxes and conscription and so on. And many of these people, as we know from Southeast Asia, are different groups of people who are themselves slavers who grab people and sell them as slaves in the you know, Malay world. Most of the cargo in the Malay early trading world are essentially human captives that are being sold, and that's true in the Roman Empire as well. And so the state very early on is likely to find what they consider to be a sort of warlike barbarian formation that they will co-opt by giving them opportunities for trade by paying them, as the Tang dynasty did, to not invade and to give them monopoly control over trade. So they were enlisted in the work of preserving, protecting, and expanding these civilized centers. I think the key term there is enlistment. One of the discussions that you've had with readers and critics of the book is around this question of the degree to which people were enlisted in state projects and whether or not you perhaps understate 
the pool factors. Uh, there's some discussion in some of the criticism around the absence of attention to religion or to other legitimating activities that may draw people voluntarily into the earliest state projects. Uh, you're skeptical about these views, and you say that you didn't find evidence of active consent. Why is that? I think there are periods in state formation, even in Mesopotamia. There's one period which is quite an extraordinary period that everyone points to of four generations of stability and trade and peace in which the urban areas are attractive and which gain population voluntarily because of the advantages in trade and so on. And of course, for the artisan and priestly population, not to mention the rulers and their families, uh, the urban areas in these early states are very attractive. And so I think there are moments when the pull, as you say, is extremely important. Now, you'll notice that that's the standard story, um, that these are places of better nutrition, of more leisure, of more luxury, of a better life all around, and that people are drawn to them. That's the standard story that we get in the school books of these growing civilizations. And it's largely uh, an argument that's not true. And to the degree that it is true, it's true for certain fairly rare periods. And it's also true for perhaps 20% of the population, not for the agriculturalists and ordinary subjects of these civilizations. Now, the question of the pull factors as well, first of all, the idea that religion, of course, that is to say, beliefs in the supernatural of some kind or another, it's not as if the urban areas have religion and the outside areas don't have, or the states have religion, and the barbarian population doesn't have religion. They all have different forms of belief. What I felt inadequate to is the idea somehow that these monuments and, let's say, ritual plowings and the ritual activities of a priestly class were a major factor in drawing people to these urban areas. I find no evidence of that, and in the absence of evidence, I'm quite skeptical about that. I think one of the problems, of course, is that many people who think of the pull factors for these civilizations are assuming that the urban civilization sort of looks more or less like the Danish welfare state when it's anything but. For example, in early Spanish settlements in the New World, many people we now understand ran away from these settlements because they associated them with disease and with forced labor and conscription and the danger of crop failures and so on. So these were pestiferous cities and they were not attractive places to be most of the time for most of their population. On matters of evidence and readership's responses, you have received a lot of applause from scholars who are enthusiastic about your provocations, as am I, and their enthusiasm is partly because of the way that those provocations push them and others to rethink the evidence that they do have. The criticisms, by the same token, tend to lean towards an argument that your own 
positions tend to lack evidence and also an argument that you tend to attempt to extrapolate from Mesopotamia to other parts of the world. Among the many comments and criticisms that you've received, the enviably large number, what were those that have given you the most pause for thought? If you could revise the text, or perhaps if you will, when a second edition comes along, what would you revisit and think about doing it differently? Go back briefly to this question of provocations. There's very little in this book that is original in terms of information. I'm actually collecting information that other people uh, whose work I respect uh, have gathered. And I was most actually terrified of what the archaeologists would think of this book. And so that was the audience that, in a sense, elicited the most anxiety because archaeologists are famous for their turf wars and so on. And here I am, an imposter. And by and large, the thing that has pleased me most is that it's received, in general, a warm reception from archaeologists. And as far as the provocations go, as you know, one of my, I suppose, quirks of mind is to suggest things that are implied by what I've read that I haven't worked out in great detail with the idea that on the basis of these provocations, I hope other people will go and do research of their own. This question of the demographic superiority of these agrarian civilizations and the way in which they prevailed over time is something that I would like to go back and study if I had enough time. I've been reading about the Cistercians. I don't know if you know much about them, but the Cistercians are a monastic order that was like a pioneer agrarian order that was responsible for implanting agrarian uh, settlements through most of Eastern Europe over a period of three or 400 years. And so it was, if you like, a colonization episode that had a kind of religious aspect to it and that traded from the excess population from the agrarian societies uh, that had filled up behind it over time. So that's something I would like to have understood better than I understand it. And I think I'm open to persuasive arguments about the role of ritual and religion. And I haven't read anything that would convince me yet that it was one of the gravitational pulls that drew people to urban areas. Uh, in terms of the symbolic world of civilization, let alone the sort of monuments that are supposed to strike all, I think that's a major unresolved issue. I don't think I have resolved it, but I'm not satisfied yet that it is a major attractant to the growth of civilizations that I have ignored. I remain open to be convinced, but I haven't seen the evidence for it yet. Were there any books or authors whose work you were alerted to in conversations after Against the Grain was published that had you read them while you were doing the research, you might have significantly altered one aspect of the argument or another? This will sound self-satisfied and arrogant, but no. I think the, the thing that always surprises me is that whatever you've said, chances are someone else has already said it and often better than you've said it. So what's happened to me as a result of this is that I've been directed by friends and readers to articles and, and books that I hadn't read that essentially 
are in the same direction. And I suppose I would have written a better book if I had read all those things that provided more evidence that I, than I was aware of. It's interesting. I, I think well, there are a lot of books that I was essentially creating a counter-narrative to, and those are the books about early states as a, an institutional invention in the Habesian sense that they are, you know, this famous social contract to protect everyone from a life of violence and death and uh, and so on. And there, there's a big argument to be had, and I have very definite opinions about, uh, I don't know how many people would be familiar with Steven Pinker and the idea that we become better and better and less violent and more humane over time. And I see no evidence of that. In Against the Grains introduction, you characterize yourself as a card-carrying political scientist and an anthropologist and environmentalist by courtesy. So I'm wondering, with that combination of characteristics, what the implications are for the writing of history. Well, I think we've explored some of them throughout the last hour that we've had this conversation. But I suppose another way of asking the question would be, how does a card-carrying political scientist who is by courtesy an anthropologist and environmentalist write a history that is different from the history of the historian or the archaeologist? It's hard to give a short answer to that. There's a a saying that I heard from Mennonites, the sort of you know religious sect like the Amish here, that goes, we get too soon old and too late smart. And it seems to me that's the case for me as well, in the sense that it's worth saying that I came of age, if you like, when I started teaching in the Vietnam War and taught courses on peasant revolution and so on. I decided then that since peasants were the largest class in world history, that it would be not a bad thing to devote my life and career to understanding the peasantry and that if development didn't mean anything for the peasants, then the hell with it. Then I decided that if I wanted to write about uh, the peasantry, I had to become an anthropologist of a kind and spend some time in a peasant village so that at least I had one village of agriculturalists and so on that I, in a sense, would check me from stupid uh, generalizations and that I'd have something to kind of keep me honest, as it were. And that's how I came to be a kind of anthropologist. And since I've always been interested in environmentalism, I have a courtesy appointment in the School of Environmental Studies and Forestry at Yale. But it strikes me that the problem with anthropology, which I fell in love with when I fell out of love with political science, is that it has generally no historical depth or relatively little historical depth as a discipline. Some people bring historical depth to it, but it's not encoded in the discipline itself. And it seems to me somehow that no anthropologist should be allowed out the door in the morning without being strapped to an historian. And in the same way, no historian should be allowed out the door without being strapped to an anthropologist. And so once I became interested in, in history, in terms of agriculture, I became interested in the deep history of how we came to live in these great collections of people and animals and in towns and governed by states, because it's so late in history that it tempted me to go back to the Neolithic, which is not something... I would have been slightly, even slightly interested in when I started out as a political scientist. 
Jim, the book came out two years ago. What's next for you? What can your readers look forward to? Unfortunately, or fortunately, the book did better than I ever imagined it would. I thought it was just like a detour that would pass pretty much unnoticed. It's gotten more attention than I ever expected it would. And it's, in a sense, occupied more of my time than I expected that it would. And so I have deferred the things that were actually before this detour that the book represents, things that I was starting to work on. And so what I'm, to answer your question directly, what I want to do is a deep history of the Irrawaddy River in Burma. And I want it to be a history truly of the river. That is to say, it seems to me that most of the books on rivers that I've read about are about quarrels about the water and the river and which groups get how much of it, you know, how much water goes to A, B, and C. And most of these books do not deal with the river as the life world of many species of mammals and shellfish and birds and fish, as well as rivers being useful to Homo sapiens for electric power and navigation and sewage and so on. And so I hope to do a history of the Irrawaddy River in which, if I can do it, I would like to try to see if the book could be in the first person of the river talking for itself. I'm not sure I can pull that off, but I'd like to give it a shot. James Scott, Thank you very much for joining us on New Books in Interpretive Political and Social Science to discuss Against the Grain. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks. Thank you to everyone for listening in. And if you have any suggestions for books that you think can help us to think in and out of the current COVID-19 pandemic, like Against the Grain, then do write and let me know. You can find my contact details on the series website. And if you'd like to keep a track of our episodes, then you can find a link to the series page on the webpage for this episode. If you'd like to stream the episodes to your device automatically, then please sign up to the New Books in Political Science channel via your preferred podcast application. <laughs>